I hope you've had a wonderful July the 4th weekend. You know that song about America? We don't know a fourth of what all the men went through to found this country and to make it what it is today. Matter of fact, one of the justices, probably one of the most respected justices that's been in our lifetime and maybe even before was Scalia and he I remember him being interviewed and he said you know there must have been some kind of divine intervention divine revelation divine leading in bringing about our constitution and bringing about our country because he said these men could not have done it on their own. And these men, a lot of them, some were deists, but many were believers. And they relied on a higher being. They, they believed in God. Many of them did. And they showed this and emphasized this, I believe, throughout the writings that they uh, left us with. And so we thank the Lord for that. But where are we today? That's a sad thing. To see that a lot of these people that are rioting, that are demonstrating, I, I don't believe that a lot of them even know what they're doing what they're standing for. And that's the sad thing about it. And what is it doing to our country? Is it really helping our country? It's dividing it even more so. But what has brought this about? Why are they so ignorant? Why are so many people so ignorant of our, you know, what made this country great? What, uh, how it was founded, different things along this line. One of the reasons, and we're going to be talking about this, I believe, is in our school systems, our higher education, and what has been taught and what has not been taught. Now, I want to put out a book, and many of the books written by her, but there's three, art, uh, three writers that I'd like to mention to you that you would do well to read after. There's many others. One is Chuck Colson. Another one that writes with him and writes separately is Nancy Percy. And then another one that began most of this, and I'll refer to him, is Francis Schaeffer, a great philosopher, Christian man. Many people were trained under him at one time in Switzerland. And he just, you know, they came flocking in to, to sit under his teaching. And he, uh, he brought out a lot of this. But we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18. And I, I want you to look in, in 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 1. It says... Now it came about after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab. 
and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now, I want you to understand the setting here. Here is Israel. Here is God's people. This is after the kingdom had been divided. You had King Saul. You had King David. You had King Solomon. And then it was divided into the north and the south. And the north really departed from the Lord in a greater mass and a greater fashion than the southern two tribes of Israel. And the northern tribes of Israel, the ten, they, uh, they were a lot more liberal. Their kings were a lot more liberal. They, they pushed away from the teaching of God. And, and they brought in a lot of heathen gods. And uh, it, very much so here with Ahab. He married Jezebel, who uh, was of a heathen nation. And she brought in the, uh, the worship of Baal. Baal was very popular during that time, and, and the gods at uh, Azareth and, and others. And so, uh, how did this happen? Well, it was a gradual thing. How does it happen here in America? America, It's a gradual thing. It doesn't just happen overnight. I want to share something with you before we get into the passage. During... A presidential campaign of past in 2008, not too long ago, what, 12 years? Okay, a, uh, ABC News published a disturbing article about young evangelicals. Now, these are evangelicals, young evangelicals that were considered from conservative churches. And they were attending a Christian youth rally in New York City. The good news is they expressed a strong commitment to biblical ethics. Matter of fact, so strong that they were making pro-life and and a political issue uh, in their voting to a a point. They were going to vote, you know, uh, if it came up for uh, pro-life instead of pro-choice. But there was a disconnect in their thinking. Many of the same teens said that their favorite political candidates, though, were pro-choice. Now, this was their reasoning. The reporter asked, well, that sounds a little contradicting. And they said, well, it really doesn't matter that much. Maybe uh, a little bit, but not that much. It's, It's all about personal preference, who you like. Now, how do we choose who we like? That's the main thing. Well, we choose how they look, how they come across, what kind of speaker they are. Are they charismatic enough? Do they sound good? Do they say some things that we like? You know, and do they make all of these promises that they can't fulfill, but it makes us feel good about it? So they said it's all about personal preference. I mean, you can't really pass judgment, they said, on someone because of their belief. Now, how did that come about? We'll go back to the schools in just a moment. Moral convictions are all, and understand this, personal preferences. Where had these teens picked up such relativistic views as this? I mean, they went 
they probably attended pretty faithfully in church. They, they went to evangelical, most of them conservative churches, but they embraced this preference type of biblical ethics. Or voting, convictions. They, you know, here was a very subjective view, a very subjective understanding of reading and studying and adhering to the Word of God. And it was draining spirituality of its power and of its power in the culture. They had absorbed the central tenet of global secularism. Now, where did they get their epistemology? The idea that morality is nothing more than personal preference that arose in the West. It came in in the aftermath of, this is where they got it, scientific revolution. Many thinkers were so impressed with the achievements that came out of that that they elevated empirical science to a source of truth. Now empiricalism is a doctrine that all knowledge is derived from the senses. What we are, what we see, what we hear, what we hold, what we weigh, what we measure. In other words, you prove it. We, we can measure it out. It's all what we see before us and we can work out. Obviously, moral truths cannot be stuffed in a test tube, can they? And so what did that do? They cannot be put under their microscope, can it? So, as a result, moral statements were no longer considered truths at all, but merely expressions of emotion. Francis Schaeffer, as I talked about earlier, was among the first in the evangelical world to identify this problem. Using the metaphor of a building, and we'll see it up here hopefully. Using a meta metaphor of a building, he warned that truth had been split into two stories. The lower story consists of scientific facts, which are held to be empirically testable and universally valid. The upper story included things like morality, theology, aesthetics, which are now regarded as subjective and culturally relative. Essentially, the upper story became a convenient dumping ground for anything that the imperialist worldview did not recognize as real. Now, what, what did this do? The dichotomy had grown so pervasive that most people, like these evangelicals, did not even realize they were holding this view. And many today don't. They really don't. It has become a part of the cultural air that we believe. Martin Luther King Jr. even said this, Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. Now, what does that tell us? 
It's a dichotomy. It's split. Albert Einstein said, Science yields facts but not valued judgments. Religion expresses values but cannot speak facts. That tells it very plainly, doesn't it? But you, you see, this wasn't always the case. In earlier ages, people, through both types of statement, dealt with questions of truth. If you made a moral statement about someone and what they ought to do, it was either true or false. Some of you remember that. This new fact-value split has placed the epistemology status into an entirely different realm, a new realm. Values are not considered matters of truth, but only personal perspective and preferences. Listen to this Cambridge professor, uh, philosopher, Lipton. Peter Lipton, who was Jewish in background. He once was interviewed, and this is what he said, I stand in my synagogue and I pray to God and have an intense relationship with God. And then he said, and yet I don't believe in God. This is what they're being taught. It's in that upper realm. It's of values. It's of feeling. It's subjective. This is what has happened. And it happened and it started really being split back in the 1930s. You know, Lipton went on to explain religion is like a novel. You can get pleasure and meaning from the experience even though you know it's not literally true. Now whether these young evangelicals understood what they were saying and what they were believing, this is basically their idea. This is what they had been taught. This is a worldwide spread of religion today. Most people don't look to spirituality for an explanatory system to answer the cosmic questions of life. Instead, they choose their spirituality based on what meets their emotional needs and, and helps them cope with the personal issues from losing weight to gaining self-confidence. This means that most people live a fragmented life in the private of their uh, privacy of their home, their church, and with their close friends, they operate in the religious realm. But they have a different view when they move out into the world, the work world. They employ the other view. The facts view in the work, in business, in politics, they say that's the objective facts. And the uh, opposition between the facts and values has become the main obstacle to living as a whole person with a consistent, coherent philosophy of life. The split view life has become the main obstacle for uh, to living a consistent world uh, Christian view. In other words, like a graduate student in chemistry who had been converted to Christianity in high school, 
retained a divided concept of truth for several years afterwards. And this is what he said. I opted on the assumption that what I learned in school and science was really true. While church was a kind of support group that provided a nice story to help cope with reality. With this two type of uh, building, two tier type, comes the idea of something that can be true for you. This is where it comes in, but not true for me. Because that is subjective. That is in that realm. So we can live that. We've got to get back, people. We've got to have a good, clear, strong view of God and His Word. We have to get back to that. You see, before this happened back in the 1930s, they had that view. They brought it together. Until 1930s, American universities were com com uh, uh, committed to the uni uh, unity of truth. This was what a historian from Harvard said, Julie Rubin. They said the conviction that all truths agreed and ultimately could be related to one another in a single system. They believed that it was God-driven. That you, you, you chose when you were making the uh, analysis in, in your facts and, and trying to figure it out, uh, your system of, of testing, that you worked it out according to God and what was right and what was wrong. Not making up your own rules. J.P. Moorhead said every discipline was expected to shed light on and harmonize with every other discipline. But what marks the modern world in the shattering of the idea of the universe uh, or the unity of, uh, is the uh, shattering of the unity of truth. Theology and ethics were moved to that upper tier, that upper story, where they could be true in an emotional or non-literal sense, but not in the terms of cognitive verifiable knowledge. In other words, if God said it happened, well, you can't prove it. But that's what drove them with the values and morals behind that, that God created this world to figure out what did happen before all of this came about. So the sexualization of American education was also driven by personal and professional motivations under the idea of the unity of truth. Scholars felt an obligation to find ways to harmonize findings of science with the truths of theology. And in a value-free science, they found that they uh, were immune to religious and moral criticism if they put them up in this upper tier by themselves. That way, they didn't have to prove whether it was morally right or wrong. They didn't have to harmonize that. And so then they could say, well, that's their view that's personalized, subjective. This is the real world. This is the truth. What they don't understand is the real world is the spirit world. What's dri driving all of this is God. What did he say? That he was spirit and truth. And it's not the physical that's driving all this. We wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for God. 
We wouldn't even be able to make up all, uh, uh, make a lot of these things better and, and think about all of this and have the wisdom to do this and produce this without God. God is sovereign and he allows all this. It came gradually. And this is the way Satan works. He is very deceptive. And this is what happened in the day of Ahab and Elijah. It didn't just all of a sudden happen. It was a gradual thing. 58 years had passed since the kingdom was ripped apart in 931 B.C. after Solomon's reign. The glorious United Kingdom had lasted for well nigh a full century with all the splendor of the reigns of David and Solomon. And now it was divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms. The northern having ten tribes, the southern having two tribes. Things had not gone very well, especially for the northern tribes. During their relatively brief period, this is how it progressively got worse. They had been ruled by seven kings. Jeroboam, he was the installer of the two calves designed to replace the worship of Yahweh. Nadab, who walked in the sins of the father of Jeroboam. Basha, who mur murdered Nadab. Eli, or Elah, a drunkard and murderer. Zimri, who was guilty of treason. Omri, a military adventurer who did worse than all who were before him. Ahab, as we come to him today. Omni's son, who did even more evil than all who were before him. It was Ahab who married the infamous Jezebel, daughter of the king of Sidon. Now these were not the best of times politically. Neither were they the best of times spiritually. For the nation had been won over to the worship of the Canaanite gods. Especially Baal. The decline of national and spiritual strength was enough to make any God-fearing person weep. Where were the God-fearing people that were weeping? The remnant. Elijah raised that same question after the prophet Elijah had been taken up to glory in 2 Kings 2.14. Where now is the Lord? The God of Elijah. Where is he? We cannot help but agree with the significance of this question, not only for then, but for now. How did their view get to that point? The same way, in many ways, as the view of our God has gotten to our point. As one author said, J.B. Phillips, your God is too small. How did he become too small? Much of it came through the educational system, but I want to share with you 
We don't put all the blame on the educational system. That's just what they've been teaching. Why are our children not able to defend themselves and to understand what is truth and believe in it? Well, it goes back to the preparation. A failure may be in our churches, but it goes back even deeper than that. A failure in our homes. We need to cry out to God for help, not in creating an image that satisfies our longing and our desires, but a view of Him that cries for undiluted truth and revelation. We need to beg God to pardon us for not seeing His greatness as we should, for not seeing His awesomeness as we should. We need to have a whole new view of God, the living God, in all His fullness. And we'll look at that briefly with Elijah. To have a renewed understanding of God, one needs to see things through spiritual lenses. No longer the, just the, the physical lens and then you separate both of them. You've got to see the whole perspective through spiritual lenses. You've got to see the physical world and the spiritual together. You've got to see the God that's making all this possible and how he's working. You've got to understand that it is God. He is sovereign. He is divine. He is awesome. He is powerful. Israel needed to shake, be shaken up. They needed to be pushed back into the realities of thinking biblically about God, the Lord of glory. God worked on their improper view through two means here. Through droughts, and I want to tell you, he can get our attention that way, can he? You see, when man thinks that he's the God, or he wants to create God in his image and put him in a tier where he can use him when he wants to, to maybe feel good, like Lipton did at this, uh, this Cambridge uh, professor, then what happens is God... Sometimes to get our attention brings drought, allows drought to come for our good. Sometimes he brings too much rain for our good. Sometimes he allows wars to come about. Sometimes he allows uh, sickness to, to come around to get our attention to understand that it's not some scientist out in, up in Washington that controls things. It's not doctors all over the country. They may give us good advice. It is God who we need to trust in first. We have, we have been putting too much faith in man. Yes, we should listen to them. Yes, they give good advice at times. And yes, the doctors, I'm sure, are giving good advice. But we listen to them. We don't even go to God many times to talk to Him and to seek Him out. Elijah didn't waste any time with God's purpose. He came to deliver a message to weak Ahab. 
Ahab the henpecked husband, who was a poor excuse of a king, letting a liberal woman who is not a God-fearing woman control him and what he should be believing. He should rise up in, as a head of the house and say, you need to listen to Yahweh. He is a true God. But what did he do? Bring in the bells. Bring in the azurahs. Bring in everything else. And let's just sit down, honey, and let's just see what happens. That's what you want, isn't it? We'll just let the country run itself like that and we'll teach our children that and we'll just let it go on. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain three or these years except at my word. This backwoodsman, rustic prophet who no one would, uh, you know, even think about listening to probably in the physical realm came before this king he was not impressed with the 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 majesty and the uh, the royalty of of uh, the court he respected the position but he did not respect what was going on and he stood before God honoring God and Elijah was the you know he was only interested in the allness and the and the uh, almightiness of God in honoring Him. And until we get back to that, we're going to remain in a heap of trouble. Our churches are. Elijah possessed a wisdom of God that exceeded all the trappings of, of uh, uh, you know, all the other mortals. That is a vision the church needs to recapture today. We need to be, let God be God, as someone said. Let God be God. But unfortunately, I don't know how far the fifth column has gotten in America. It's gotten pretty deep. What are you talking about fifth column? In 1939, Spanish Civil War was coming to an end and the general was preparing his attack on Madrid. He had four columns of troops ready to uh, take the city and someone asked him, which of the, uh, the ones he, that would uh, be the first to attack? And his answer was the fifth. The fifth. It was on the inside. You see, his most important line of attack was not the military outside the gates. It was the rebel sympathizers inside the gate. And we have plenty of those inside the gate. They went about unnoticed, but they were already preparing for his advance. The fifth column within Christianity are those who have brought about this lie that there are two tiers and Christianity is just subjective. It is more than that. And we should realize that. The fifth column has been teaching that a religion was not meant to be taught as real, as fact but only subjective. Since religion is subjective and not factual, it does not have an effect on the world of science and math and other so-called factual points of interest. In simple terms, we've allowed our system to bring in the gods of science disguised as the gods of fact and truth to replace the true God 
of truth. They replaced the one and only God, Yahweh, with many other gods during that time. The Baal worship. Worshiping Yahweh become a sub, became a subjective type of worship that was relative to the person worshiping him. That meant he could be worshipped and followed any old way the person desired. He became a man-made deity. What does that mean? Well, let me try to illustrate it with a story. I heard about two hunters was on this property, farmer's property hunting. They were out in the woods. And they ran up on this big old hoe, dark hoe. And they looked down in it and they said, man, I wonder how deep that thing is. I don't know. One of them kicked some dirt in. They couldn't hear it hit the bottom. Another one threw a stick in there and he couldn't hit it. Then they looked around over in the bushes. I mean, just brush, just grown up all over it. There was a transmission. So they drug it over there with all the brush and everything and they threw it off in the hole. And they looked over as they threw it off in the hole, listening and counting to see how deep it was. Then all of a sudden they heard something coming out of the bushes. They looked around and there was a goat coming right at them and they jumped back and the goat went whoop right in. They said, my goodness, where'd he come from? Then they saw some feet behind them and they looked up and there was a farmer. He said, boys, have you seen my goat? He said, funny you ask that. He said, there was a goat. We were looking over in the hole and there was a goat that came running over this way and he jumped right in this hole farmer replied that couldn't be my goat I had him chained to a transmission <laughs> same way that goat followed the transmission into the hole behaviors follow belief what we believe will inevitably pull our behavior with it right thinking about God and spiritual matters is imperative to kingdom people man if we want our kids and grandkids and great grandkids to know God to be saved to enter into God's kingdom and to be able to stand firm and maybe make a difference here today in our society whatever difference it may be we've got to be true to God's word and God we've got to have a proper perspective of him without that it will lead not just to postmodern thinking but post-christian thinking what we're seeing today second of all having renewed understanding of God meant knowing that one person plus God was a majority and then Elijah said to the people I alone am left a prophet of the Lord but Baal's prophets are 450 men I want to tell you Elijah's view of God was being forged way before he went to meet Ahab and tell him okay let's have a duel here you remember the brook of Cherith and they had, there had been a dry, drought hadn't there and so what had he been doing he had been waiting there pinned up going nowhere waiting on God trusting him 
Three years of prayer and meditation in the Word of God. No small preparation. A lot of agonizing of the soul. You see, Elijah didn't have to find God at any time. He just remained true to God and he didn't have to find his will. God just continued to lead him. And that's the key to it. Finding God is finding his will. So Elijah numerically was outnumbered, but spiritually he wasn't. And that's what counted. One plus God is the majority. Elijah understood God as sovereign and not man. When your view of God is re renewed, you begin to look at your circumstances and situations differently, like Elijah did. And then third, having a renewed understanding of God meant refusing to be double-minded. You see, when you've got that view, you won't be double-minded. And that's what the world wants you to be, double-minded. Double-minded is two tiers, isn't it? It's facts down here and values up here. You live your life the way you want to, any old way you choose up here in private, but don't bring it down here to the real world, facts, science, and other realms. That's being double-minded. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer. How long will you go limping, in other words, the word is, wavering? With two opinions. Double-minded. Fence setters. Wanting to retain full loyalty to two opposing opinions. It's kind of like the Republicans of 1884. You remember? They were called mugwumps. They had the mug faces on the one side of the fence and the wumps, the seat of their trousers, on the other side. What does God say about that? In, in Psalm and in James, he says that he hates double-minded men. Matthew 12, 30, the Lord warned, who is not with me is against me. We're not going to be lukewarm, either hot or cold. Too many in the church today want to accommodate the culture. They want to be like the culture and claim to be Christians also. <clears throat> At our business meeting, when a discussion has gone probably long enough, someone will call, hopefully, for a question. <laughs> and that question means enough is enough. Let's vote. We've heard enough. Let's take a stand. Well, Elijah was calling for question. He comes and calls for a stand, a vote. Now, when, uh, <clears throat> now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table, in verse 19. Well, Elijah was telling Ahab to get all his gods together, along with all his girlfriends that sat up at Jezebel's table, and to come there. And we'll see who the real God is. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. What did the people do? They didn't answer. Sometimes we don't need to say anything. We need to just sit there because we've been 
shamed by the Holy Spirit, and we need to allow him to speak to our hearts and tell us what to do. How long will you hesitate? How long will you stagger, stammer? Elijah had a proper understanding and perspective of God. He knew where he was standing, and there was no wavering, no hesitation with Elijah. Too many churchgoers are like politicians, like the politician who was asked, where do you stand? He replied, well, hmm, some of my friends stand on this side while others stand on that side, so I stand with my friends. The question raises the theological issue of who God really is. Now to find out, I want to close with this, this verse. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, it says, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is believed and, and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immorality or immortality, excuse me, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. God is infinitely perfect. He is the infinitely perfect spirit. He has no limits. There is no space for someone or something else when he is seen as the infinite God. Having gods in our life that we create gives us gods that we can control. But we need a God that controls us. And that is Yahweh. Elijah knew he was serving the God that was infinite. His perspective was correct. When a man has a correct view of God, then he is serving in, under the power and, and by God's grace. But when he has a wrong view of God, he will always have a wrong view about life. There will always be a wrong view about choices. There will always be a wrong view about ourselves. Elijah challenged the Israelites to stand with the real God. We no longer need to be creating our own religion. We no longer need to be substituting all sorts of, of uh, things with our God. We need a biblical view. We need to carry that renewed understanding into every walk of life, demonstrating the true sovereignty of God and His infinitude. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this country. I want to thank you for our churches. But God, I also realize that we're not perfect. And I see where much of what these great people of God have talked about in their books has come about. Just like with Israel, we've allowed things to weaken our beliefs and our belief system. We bought into that lie that Satan has put before us. We walk, whether we acknowledge it or not, so often in that two-story, that two-tier type of mentality. Help us 
to get a true view of you. To get a biblical understanding of you. And help us to carry that in our lifestyle as we live every aspect of our life. Not just at church and at home and among our friends, but every aspect of it. And then, Lord, help us also to teach it and train our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren in this truth so that they will be prepared as they face it because it's not going away. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. If God's dealing with you in any